There is a kind of father who builds a better world for you. But there is also a kind of father who builds a better world in you. There are people in our lives that because they have lived, our environment is vastly different than it ever would have been. And there are people in our lives that because they have lived, our lives are different than they ever would have been. There are people who because of what they have done in the past, our future will be changed. And there are people because of how they have lived who will always be with us in the present. The first kind of gift comes only with heroic sacrifice. The second kind of gift comes only with personal investment. In the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is describing to his disciples both a crisis that is coming and a gift that is near. In this chapter, he does one of the most masterful pieces of describing the Trinity you could ever see. Now, because this is such a long chapter, I can't go verse by verse, but I'm going to break it down into three sections so that as you read this word yourself, the Holy Spirit can weave it into your character. The first section, Jesus is talking about the crisis. The crisis of leaving. Leaving is a part of life. All of us face crisis after crisis when we leave. Or when someone leaves us. Or when the world changes forever. It's a crisis. But it's curious that these words that are so often used for a funeral are words that are more appropriate for a wedding. Begin with me with the first verse. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. Now, let's go immediately to the Greek and to the original nuances that Reggie was talking about. This literally means stop letting your heart be troubled. I know your hearts are troubled right now. Stop letting your heart be troubled. Believe in God. This is in the present tense. It means you already believe in God. Keep on believing in God. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Now, some of your Bibles say mansions, which has given uh, rise to uh, rather uh, interesting uh, afterlife theology. Uh, but the, wor- the word here, dwelling place, talks about abiding. We're going to talk about that more next week because that's in John 15. It's that place where you just want to go and, and you, want to, you just want to stay because you have finally found home. <laughs> All your life you've been looking for home and this is home. You know? In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now I've told you before, this is the imagery in Jewish tradition of a wedding. What happens after a betrothal is that the potential groom goes away and on his father's land, usually, builds a dwelling place for his future bride. Now, no one knows how long that's going to take. If any of you have ever built a house, you know the feeling. You, don't think, you, you, think, it's, you think it's going to be delayed, and it is delayed. But when that is done, and it's only after the father has said, yeah, that looks good enough. Then the bridegroom comes back. And those that have been looking for the bridegroom sees him coming. There are trumpets and there is a great processional and there is a wedding at the end of that journey. And that bridegroom comes back for the bride and takes him, takes her to himself and carries her off to that dwelling place that where he is there she may be also. Those are the words that we use for a funeral. Those are really the words for a wedding. Because when you're a Christian, a funeral is a wedding. Then Jesus says this, And you know the way where I am going. Now Thomas interrupts him. I love Thomas. You couldn't say anything just and have it understood by Thomas. Because Thomas couldn't see anything he couldn't see. You understand? He was so skeptical of anything, and when he didn't understand something, he'd put his foot in and say, I don't understand it. Now, you have known people like this. They're believers, kinda. They, 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 but you can't just fly off with something because they doubt. Uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, had somebody like this in his cabinet who didn't believe anything he didn't see with his own eyes. And, and one time they were riding in a train across the country and they, and they passed this farmland. And there was a, there was a, that reminds me, turn off your cell phones, please. There was a flock of sheep and they had just been sheared. And so Franklin, so Donna Roosevelt said, look at the sheep, boy, they've just been sheared. And his friend, his companion said, well, this side has been. See, he wouldn't, he wouldn't presume that the other side had been seared because he hadn't seen the other side. Thank you very much. And this is Thomas. This is Thomas. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know the way. Jesus said, you know the way. He said, we don't know the way where you're going. How do we know the way? Now, if you wanted to sum up all of Johannine theology in one verse, John 14, 6 would be the verse. I am the way. And the truth and the life. It says, No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, let's just spend just one second on there because I hear people all the time saying, That is so exclusive. That is so, ex that is so exclusionary to say that nobody can come to the Father but through Him. It is meant just the opposite. Think of this. If you were in a burning building and there were one exit 
that exit wouldn't look like an exclusion. It would look like an invitation. You are in a burning building. All of this is going away. There is one exit. Don't get mad because there's an exit. Be glad because there's an exit. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, keep on with me here. And so it says, if you, have, and, 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 uh, if you had known me, you would have already known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip doesn't get it either. So he says, well, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Well, that's big of him, isn't it? Well, just go ahead and show us God and that'd be enough. Jesus, who is as frustrated as Reggie gets with his little baseball kids, Jesus said, have I been with you so long with you and yet you, do, you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? In other words, Jesus is saying this, very important. I don't represent God, I present God. There's a, there's a vast difference here. We are Trinitarian people. And when you've seen one, you've seen the other. They are separate, but they are one. And so, he goes on. Now let's skip down to, to verse 12. Jesus is saying, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he shall also do. He is bequeathing to his followers his good works. Now this is something truly startling, what he says next. Look at what he says next. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. Greater works than Christ? We're supposed to do greater works than Christ? It's true, and it's a fulfilled prophecy. Let me tell you how. Any of you who have been in a larger city have probably seen a hospital there named after his followers. You in larger cities know that you may have a Baptist hospital or Presbyterian hospital, Lutheran hospital, Methodist hospital, St. Francis Catholic hospital. You never see atheist hospital. <laughs> you never see agnostic hospital. You see hospitals of his followers. And the Lord heals through those followers, hospitals, hundreds of thousands of people. Greater works than I do shall ye do. When Louis Palau or Billy Graham speaks, they speak to crowds of 100,000. If they're televised, they speak to millions. The most people Jesus ever spoke to when he was down here was five, five to 7,000 at a time. Now, Jesus was greater than all of us put together. But the works that we do are greater than His, true to His prophecy. Come on with me some more. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, that is the close of the section of the great transition. Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to build a new world out of my sacrificial death. But there's going to come something more than just a different world. I don't know how many of you love epic hero stories. I do. I always have loved epic hero stories. I love epic hero movies. I love Spartacus. 
You know, I, I, last night's Spartacus was, was on again. I love that movie. Because here is a reluctant hero. Somebody who doesn't set out to be a hero. But there comes a role in history for him to play. And it's very evident that he must play that final role. That he must step up and play that role. I loved the movie Braveheart. There was a reluctant hero. He tried not to be one. He tried not to get involved. But it came to him that the world in all of its trouble would touch those he loved. And so he stepped up to that role. I loved Gladiator. There was another reluctant hero. I loved Patriot. There was another reluctant hero. And these were his words. Now I won't spoil this movie for you because I know most of you haven't seen it yet. But here was a man that for his family didn't want to get involved. Thought that it was less trouble if he stayed out of it. But as the war approached and affected his family, he knew he had to be called to action. And the first action he takes, he feels horrible for what he's done. And his sister-in-law says to him, you've done nothing for which you need to be ashamed. And he replies, I've done nothing, so I need to be ashamed. You see, all of us were put into this world to face the conflict that it takes to conquer the bad and help the good. All of us were put into this world to make a difference. And all of us are still in this world because God still wants us to make a difference. Otherwise, our number would be up and we'd be in heaven. But what we must keep in perspective and what Jesus wanted his followers to keep in perspective is that along with the crisis comes a new life. Those of you who know the word crisis in Chinese know that the word crisis in Chinese is a combination of two characters. One, danger, and the other, opportunity. But even more precisely, for this talk is the word crisis in Hebrew. The word crisis in Hebrew, mashber, literally means birthing stool. That place of great pain, but new life. Jesus said there is coming a time of great pain, great sacrifice, but it will also be of new life and of a new type of life you've never known before. Read the next section of the passage with me. <clears throat> Verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now this word paraclete many times is used to describe Jesus himself. There are two ways that you can take this phrase, another helper. One is another other than I. Another altogether. And the other is another I, another me. He means it in this second sense. He will give you another helper, like I've been your helper. As a matter of fact, it is me. Read on with me and you'll find that out. That he may be with you forever. A physical person can't be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him, 
Now, how could he say you know him? They hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. That doesn't come till Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had not been distributed yet. How can he say you know him? Because they knew Jesus. And if they knew Jesus, they knew the Holy Spirit. Same person. Look at this. And you know him because he abides with you. That'd be Jesus. And he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now let's, let's talk about this shared life. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about sharing his life in another form. One of the most important things, Jesus did two things when he changed forms to love more intimately. One is that he performed a great strategy and the other is that he performed a great love. First of all, he knew that people needed to be loved according to their limitations, not according to his ability. When he gave up his life, he gave up his life so that we could have it in a form that we could actually have it. Let me, let me uh, I, I read a book this week, uh, Leonard Sweet's uh, wait a minute, Postmodern Pilgrims, that's his latest one. And he said something in that book I've never thought about before. He said, even the golden rule can be taken selfishly. Now think of this. I, I, I really, it really kind of startled me. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. He said, at first reading, when you, when you read that, who's the center, who's the center of, of, uh, of uh, uh, the form of love? You are. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. You're the center of the deal there. He said, but that's not like Jesus meant it. The spirit of the thing is, do unto others as they need done unto them. As they can best receive the love. As they need it for their life, not according to what you need for your life. That's what it really means. He calls it the platinum rule. That's what it really means. When Jesus died on the cross, it was to send us the Holy Spirit. Because, watch this. We could not avail ourselves of him if he remained physically. Even if he lived forever physically, how many people could get to him? How many people could be intimate with him? Just a limited number of people. And the people who needed him most probably couldn't get to him because they wouldn't know how. I, I read another book this week. It's, it's one of the best books on globalization I've ever read. It's called A, perfect, uh, a, a Future Perfect. Uh, and it's by uh, Megalowith and uh, 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 Woolrich. Um, and it's a, it's a marvelous work, but something startled me in that and, and really kind of brought me uh, uh, to think of this message. He, he said, speaking of mobile phones, he said, there are 200 million mobile phones in the world right now. Now watch. He said, by the year 2004, four years, there's going to be over a billion mobile phones. More than the number of wired phones right now. Now the first thing I thought about when I read that sentence was, oh man, the rich are just getting richer. But he pointed out something that I knew I just hadn't thought about. That will be of the most help to those in developing countries. 
You see, the wealthy already have wiring. We all got wiring. But when we call our pastor in Namibia, Africa, and we, we, we've got to call him on his cell phone because he doesn't have wiring. Thank you very much. And he can't email us back and forth. They don't have telephone lines to where he lives. But he's got a mobile phone so we can talk with him. It is our way that wherever he is, we can be there also. That's exactly the point for Jesus. He wanted to give us love in a way, strategically, so that wherever we were, he could be with us also. But there's another flavor in this, and I don't want you to miss it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intimacy. It's not just a strategy. It's an intimacy. He says, and he will be in you. There was a degree of closeness to Jesus that we could never get just in a physical sense. We couldn't get until his spirit was residing in us. There was a degree of, of friendship, a degree of love that we couldn't experience that would not be, that was, that was beyond technical, you know? That was be, it's just, it's not something that you think of technically. It just, it's not a part of your brain. It's a part of what you experience. What, what drives a man with a PhD in New Testament from Duke University to use the word way cool when he talks about God? I mean, this guy has all of the technical knowledge, all of the theological language at anyone's command. And yet, when he talks about God, he's reduced to way cool. <laughs> Why? Because our relationship with God is not a technical one. It's one of awe and reverence. It's one of experience. It's one of the heart. The people who have changed your life the most aren't necessarily the people who in this world have achieved the most. Think of it for a moment. If I were to ask you to name the five richest people in the world, I'm not sure most of you could do that. They are the ones that are making a huge difference in the world, but nobody knows their name. If I were to ask you to name five Olympic gold medalists, individual gold medalists, probably not many of you could do that. If I could ask you to name five Nobel Prize winners, five Pulitzer Prize winners, probably not many of you could do that. Those are the movers and shakers of the world. But what if I were to ask you, name me five teachers who have changed your life. You could do that, couldn't you? What if I were to ask you, Name me five friends who without their love and care you could not possibly have gotten through what you needed to go through at a given point in your life. You could do that, couldn't you? If I were to ask you, name me five family members whose love is more valuable to you than your own life. Not only could you do that, you would get a hint of the intimacy and the value of which I'm talking. When Jesus took on a different form, that is the form of the Holy Spirit, he did it not just so that he could keep in contact. He did not just change the world 
so that we could have a different environment. He did it to invest himself in us. He did it so that he could be close and so that we could know his love and feel his love. In the last section, we'll go through this quickly. The last section really pulls in again the image of the Father. Now in verse 22, it says that Judas, not Iscariot, you don't have to be mad at this one, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Now the word that is used here is the word for theophany. A theophany is a visitation of God that everybody can see, believer or non-believer. And he said, how is it that you're not, you're not going to come back in a form so that just everybody can see you? And Jesus said, no, that's not how we're going to do it. It's going to be more intimate. It's going to come through love. Look at the next verse. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. This is not just about Jesus. This is about this is about his father. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. We will come to him. One of the main things we've got to get it through our heads is that if we're going to make a difference, we've got to take the initiative. If we're going to take a, make a difference in the world, we've got to take initiative. Nobody's going to invite us to do that. If we're going to make a difference in somebody's life, we're going to have to take the initiative. They don't, people don't know how to ask for love. They don't, they don't know how, they don't even, I, I heard a cute story, I love this story. Young man and young woman, gone together for a long time. Both of them are tremendously shy, bashful people. And so they've been going together for months and months and months and he's trying to get up with nerve to ask her to give him a kiss. Well, he brings her home one night Perfect night for this. You know, the moonlight's shining. They've had a good evening. She's just standing there looking at him. And so he kind of gets all his courage up and he, he looks at her and he says, Can I kiss you good night? But she kind of starts twitching a little bit and <laughs> kind of smiles and just doesn't say anything. Well, now. He's so nervous he can't stand it. She didn't say anything. Well, now what do you do? And so he's thinking, oh, well, I can't back down now. I already asked. And so, so he said, well, maybe I didn't. He's thinking, maybe I didn't phrase it right. So he looks at her and says, may I kiss you goodnight? She just keeps smiling and kind of lifts her head up a little like that. Now he's really flustered. He's so flustered he mumbles to himself, are you deaf? <laughs> and she looks at him and sweetly says, Are you paralyzed? <laughs> Come on out. It's our job to take the initiative. People don't know how to ask. People don't know how to accept. People know how to say no. But they don't know how to accept the investment of our life into them. We must take the initiative. We were put here to change the world. We were put here to change lives, to make people feel loved, and to put the character of the Holy Spirit as he comes through us into others as we love them.
And I know, I know that you don't feel like you're up to that. And let me tell you, you're not. Neither am I. But the power of the Holy Spirit is not according to our ability. It's according to God's ability. And what we do in people's lives and what we leave in people's lives, both that, is that, that of God and that of us, is up to God in His work. It will, though, with our effort, with our initiative, make a tremendous difference. Many of you know that my father died when I was four, and it about killed my mother. I mean, she loved that man all her life. He was her hero. He was this swashbuckling soldier. And she was crazy nuts in love with him. And after his death, and even before his death, I can remember her telling me story after story of what a wonderful man he was, what a great hero he was, and how he risked his life for other people. There came a time in my life when I felt that I didn't have a man in my life that could be my example and my model. And it was a terrible lack. And one day, I was coming home from football practice, and I walked past the porch of the town historian. Now this woman knew everything and everybody in town. And this woman knew everything about everybody in town. You had one of those? You had... So I'm walking past, I don't want to talk to this lady because she, she just talked about stuff I wasn't interested in, but she called out to me. She said, Joey, Joey Hunter, you come up here right now, son. Now, where I came from, if an elder told you to do something, you did it. So I just went up on the porch, and I got ready for this long lecture. And her next words to me meant more than I can ever tell you. She said, honey, I knew your father. He was a wonderful man. I knew his whole family. And I want to tell you something. I can't look at you but be reminded of him. You walk like he walked. You hold your head like he held his head. And when you talk, I hear your daddy Bill. I cannot tell you what that meant to me. That my father was invested in me in a way I didn't know. I cannot tell you what it means to me that my Father in heaven is invested in me in a way I cannot know. I only know that when people look at me, I hope they think of him. I only know that I want to invest my life in others like he invested his life in me.